one life, enjoy it. Or you could say, joy, the most serious pursuit in the world. And I know that for a lot of people, the term joy and the term serious don't go together. They feel like alternatives. You can either be serious or you can be happy. That's not true because the opposite of joy is not serious. The opposite of joyful is silly or trivial, at least the way I see joy. So I'm serious in my quest for joy, and I want you to be serious in your quest for joy. It's not silly, this quest, this pursuit of your maximum happiness in this life and forever. It's not silly, it's serious, it's not marginal, it's central, and it's not optional, it's necessary. I was thinking yesterday that there's a infinite qualitative chasm between those who are glad, happy, joyful, that they're not going to hell, and those that are glad and happy and joyful, that they're also going to be with Jesus forever. There's an infinite chasm between those two groups of people. Because joy in Jesus, joy in God, is not the same as being glad you don't have to go to hell. There's nothing spiritual about not wanting pain. And there's everything spiritual about being satisfied with God. A miracle has to happen for that to come true. No miracle has to happen to be afraid of hell. So there's a a chasm between people who are scared to death of hell and want out and so sign on. And those who have also had the miracle happen of no matter what, Jesus is everything to me. Those are radically different human beings, which is why the pursuit of that is so serious. Let me give you some background to why I'm talking about this and where it came from. (coughs) You heard some in the previous (coughs) answer to the question over there. I used to, when I was your age... For whatever reason, and I don't think it was my parents' fault, probably not my church's fault, probably my own sin's fault and my not listening well and certainly not reading my Bible well, I was almost afraid to be happy. I had this vague, amorphous sense that 
If I, if I wanted to be happy, if I did anything in order to be happy, it was defective. It was just inferior. Because there was in my mind many talks and texts. He who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So deny myself, put a cross. And so the thought of going along a road towards joy, or going along a road towards happiness, just felt something's wrong here. Even if I couldn't put my finger on it, which, which meant that all worship and all virtue seemed to be selfless. In other words, you had to somehow divest yourself of what felt like an indomitable desire for happiness. You had to divest yourself of that, get rid of it in order to worship as you ought or be virtuous and care about people. And today, I think exactly the opposite. If you try to stop pursuing joy, you can't worship God. And if you try to stop finding joy fullest, longest, you can't love people. That's what I believe now. And the change between those two ways of viewing life and the world came between the ages of 22 and 25, 1968 to 1971 in Pasadena, California. Everything changed. And I want to take you with me on a little pilgrimage of change. So that if, if by any chance you are perhaps where I was, I could hasten your biblical discoveries that might change everything in your life as it did for me. I was standing in a bookstore on Colorado Avenue called Vroman's, Vroman's Bookstore. In 1968, the fall of 1968, I wasn't married yet. I'd be married in December of 68. I was madly in love. I was engaged. My wife was at Wheaton still. I was in California. I mean, wife-to-be. And uh, we were going to be married December 21, 1968. So a lot of emotions inside of me. I was just in seminary for the first semester. And it was an afternoon, free, and I was feeling, I'm sure pensive and moody and in love and needed a bookstore or something <laughs> or a walk in the mountains. So I took a bookstore. It's closer. And I was standing there. It was a square table and my eyes fell on a little blue paperback by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And I picked it up. I had fallen in love with C.S. Lewis in college but I'd never read this book, and I'd never read this page that changed everything. So one page, it's amazing. Books don't change people, paragraphs change people. 
So let me read you the paragraph that was life-altering. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I had never heard anybody say that. Or if they had, I just wasn't listening. That the problem with the world, the problem with me, is not that I want to be happy. But I don't want nearly enough to be happy. Your problem is not that you want to be happy. It's that you settle for mud pies in the slums because you can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. That's the problem with the world. That was a whole new diagnosis to me. If that was true, everything was changing. It is true. It is true. It was liberating to me at first because it said, okay, you mean Jesus thinks my desires to be happy are too weak, so I'm settling for mud pies? Yes, so get on a quest. Get on a quest. Maximize. Grow this thing. Grow this thing so that you will not be satisfied with inferior pleasures. Get your capacities for joy big as they ought to be so that they will be satisfied only by the big, glorious, true things. That's what life becomes. So it was liberating. I get on that quest. Yes. He's telling me to want to be more happy, not less happy. And it was devastating. Liberating and devastating because I think he's saying that the holiday at the sea is God. And I didn't think in those categories of being happy in God. You worship God and you serve God and you obey God and you submit to God. But Holiday at the sea? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Somehow I missed that text. So it was devastating. Like, okay, am I a Christian? I was very confused. I was very excited. I was very scared. 
And I had to go back to my Bible. I don't care what C.S. Lewis says. I care what God says. And I believe this is where God talks. So I wanted to go back to my Bible and find out, is this true? Does the Bible diagnose the world that way? That its problem is not that it wants to be happy, but that it is far too easily pleased and is not nearly jealous enough, zealous enough, passionate enough for its own joy? That's the problem with the world? Is that what the Bible teaches? That we should be on a daily quest for maximum, longest-lasting joy? Is it that essential? Is it central? And uh, it is. And so I want to take you on my tour. I think I've got 10 observations. We'll see if we can pack them into 26 minutes and 53 seconds. I got 10 arguments that C.S. Lewis is right. And that your problem is not that you want to be happy, but that your capacity for happiness has shrunk to the point where you think that your maximum happiness is found elsewhere than in God. That's the main problem with the universe. Argument number one. It is a serious quest because if we don't delight in God, enjoy God, be satisfied in God, above all things, we dishonor God. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's the first and the main argument. I'm going to begin with it. I'm going to end with it. I used to think that God called me to glorify God. My dad taught me, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, Johnny, in word or deed or whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I knew God meant to be glorified and I felt like I want to be happy. Can they go together? And here's Lewis saying, yes. Now, here's the text. If you have a Bible, you can look at it with me. I'll just treat it very briefly because we could spend the whole half hour on Philippians 1, but I want you to see this because this is really crucial. Philippians chapter 1, verse mm, 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that now, as always, I might not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So you see what he's saying? Stop in the middle. My passion, he's saying, is that Christ be magnified, made to look great in my life. And I knew that was what the universe was about. Oh, yes. So what about satisfaction? How how does that relate to that? I want him to be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. Verse 21. For for to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Now, the connection between that sentence and the one before is an explanatory ground. I want Christ to be magnified in my body even if I die, for to die is gain. Now, how does that argument work? 
Christ will be seen to be magnificent in my dying body if as I die, I count death gain. What kind of an argument is that? Verse 23 gives the missing premise. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So death meant be with Christ. Oh, so he's saying, I want Christ to be magnified in my body. And he will be if in my dying I count death gain because I get Christ. Now, put it together. What happens when you die? Some of you will probably die in 2012. This is a big room. Some of you have leukemia in your body. You don't even know it. So email me in November. And I'm not joking. Or your mom. I just got an email this morning that a friend of mine, his dad heard they had liver cancer four days ago. He died today. They did not know it. Four days. That's how much time you may have. So you're, you're going to die. You're all going to die unless Jesus comes. And some of you soon. So Paul says, I want Christ to be magnified as I'm dying in my death. How? For to me to die is gain. What happens when you die? You lose everything on the planet. All your dreams here, gone. Wife, gone. Kids, gone. Retirement, gone. Marriage, maybe, gone. Sex, gone. There'll be no marrying or giving in marriage in the age to come. It's over. And when you... Stare that in the face. The loss of everything you've known and enjoyed here. And all you get is Jesus. And you say, gain. Who looks good at that moment? Jesus. That's the way it works. Which is why I say, Christ is most magnified in me in my dying. When in my dying, I am more satisfied in Christ than I am with everything on the planet, even what is most dear to me. That's what it takes to magnify Jesus. Christ is most magnified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Philippians 1, 19 to 21. Work it out. For yourself, it's really there. It's really powerful. That's argument number one for why this is a biblical and serious quest and that C.S. Lewis was right. Argument number two. God commands you to be happy. This is not icing on the cake. This is not a suggestion. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. It's not an option. It's a command. That's Psalm 100. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord. Or Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Those are commands. So. Argument number two. He commands it. I had a friend one time 
who said to me, John, I don't think you should go around the country telling people to pursue their joy. I think you should say, tell them to pursue obedience. And I said, well, that's like telling me, don't tell them to pursue apples, pursue fruit. Are you, you get it? Get it? Obedience, friend, means do what God tells you to do, right? And what did he tell them to do? Be happy. So, yeah, there's more than that, but he did say it. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. He said it. I'm going to obey. I'm not going to put obedience and the pursuit of happiness in alternative categories. They're like that. They overlap. That's argument number two. Number three, he threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Deuteronomy 28 verse 47 because you did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, you will serve your enemies. Okay. But that's a threat. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness, you will serve your enemies. If you don't find me satisfying in your service of me, go serve your enemies and see what happens. God is not playing games with this. That's number three. He threatens terrible things. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Number four, the nature of faith teaches us to pursue our fullest joy in God. The nature of faith. Listen to this word from Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, I want to please God. Without faith, I can't please God. And then he says, faith believes two things. For he who would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. If you want to please God, you must come to God believing two things. You're there and you Satisfy, you reward, you bless, you are what I need. If you come to give rather than to get, you blaspheme. God's not a trough waiting for the bucket of your service, He is a spring waiting for your thirst. You honor a fountain by drinking and saying, ah, not by hauling the buckets of your labor up the mountain and dumping them in. Faith means coming to God confident that he is and that he will be for you the reward you've been longing for all your life. That's what faith is. Or Jesus in John six thirty-five, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall not hunger. He who comes to me shall never thirst. So what does believe mean in that verse? John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me 
will never hunger. So you're coming to eat him and be satisfied with the bread. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So coming to eat and believing are parallel, right? See that? I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He believes in me will never thirst. So if you put the parallels together and say, so what does believe mean in this verse? It means Coming to Christ so as to be satisfied with him as your soul bread and your soul drink. That's what faith is. We have so intellectualized faith, we've turned faith into such decisionistic, mechanistic stuff. There's just so many people who aren't saved who think they're saved. Because they made some choice which has nothing to do with their gut. Heart reality. Who do they love? Who do they delight in? What do they treasure? No difference at all. Just like the world. But they sign the card. They believe a doctrine like the devils. It's so sad. Faith is being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. That's what it is. Number five, the nature of evil teaches us to pursue our joy in God. What is evil? You got a definition of evil in your head? Here's one. Jeremiah 2.13. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people, this is God talking, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. (laughs) What an amazing definition of evil. What is evil? Evil is tasting the fountain of life called God, turning to the desert sands and spending your life digging and sucking on the dirt in the confidence that it's going to taste good someday, it's going to satisfy. And God says, be shocked, galaxies. It is shocking. It is shocking. And so many of you are there with your face in the sand. Unable to imagine what a holiday at the sea called God is like. And my prayer as I talk is that God would awaken you. Come Holy Spirit. That's argument number five. The nature of evil shows us what our pursuit should be. Number six, the nature of conversion. What is conversion? There's a little teeny parable in Jesus' teachings in Matthew 13, 44, that goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. 
And then, in his joy, that's a very important phrase, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. End of parable. What's, what's the point of that parable? The kingdom of God, that is, God's rule manifest in Jesus Christ, the King, coming into your life to exert His kingly authority is like this. You're walking along outside that rule and you stumble over something and you dig around and you open it. It's full of gold and silver and jewels. And according to the law of the day, if you owned that field and found it, you'd, be, you'd have it. It's yours. So he shuts it, covers it over, and he goes, i got to buy this field. i got to buy this field. At any cost, I have to have this field because that treasure in it which would satisfy my soul is like the kingdom. He sells everything. He sells wedding ring, all the heirlooms, all his books, my books. <laughs> sells his car, sells his computer, sells everything. All he has in his hand is something he can exchange for God. And how does he lose all that stuff? With joy, it says. That's conversion. Living your life at the front end with a treasure in stuff. A change happens. Eyes are opened. Joy is changed and awakened. The treasure, King Jesus, is welcomed. I count everything as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3, 8. So argument number six is that the nature of conversion teaches us that we should be on a serious pursuit of joy. Seven, Jesus teaching about self-denial leads us to the conclusion that we should pursue maximum Longest lasting joy in God. That's counterintuitive. Let me read you the text. If anyone, this is Mark eight thirty four. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, Piper, you're you're going you're going to Chattanooga, and you're going to ruin these young people because. You're telling them to pursue their own joy when Jesus told them to pursue self-denial and cross-bearing. And my response to that objection is, read the next verse. So, verse 35 gives the argument for why you should deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Argument for whoever will save his life We'll lose it. Now, what's the argument there? You don't want to lose your life, do you? No. Well, then don't save it. That's the argument. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What's the argument? You want to save it, don't you? Yes. Well, then lose it. 
That's the argument. What, what, what's, what is Jesus saying? He is, he's not telling people, be an ultimate loser of your life. Be an ultimate loser of joy in God. He's not saying that. He's saying be a temporary loser of tin so you can have gold. Be a temporary loser of brackish water so you can have choicest wine. Be a temporary loser of mud pies in the slums so you can have a holiday at the sea. There is no such thing as ultimate self-denial in Christianity. Ultimate self-denial is blasphemy because it is saying, I've come finally to God and I want none of him. I want none of him. I will deny myself forever. No pleasures from God. Don't you dare make me happy. I don't want to enjoy your glory. That's blasphemy. Therefore, this text is not teaching ultimate self-denial. It's teaching he who would hate his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the way Jesus said it in John 12. Oh, yeah, I believe in self-denial. I really believe in self-denial, but only as a means to maximizing my joy. I know where maximum joy is to be found because it was just read by that young woman a few minutes ago. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's an important word, fullness. At your right hand are pleasures forever. That's an important word, forever. So I've said to people all over the country and around the world, anybody, anybody in this room, you come up to me and show me where I can found find joy fuller than full, longer than forever, and I will cease to be a Christian instantly and go with you there. And I mean it, don't you? You are offered in God's presence fullness of joy. There is no such thing conceivable than full or a full than full. You are offered pleasures forever. There is nothing longer than forever. Therefore, it cannot be improved. God cannot be improved as a source of joy. Why would you go anywhere else with that kind of offer? That's number seven. Number eight. God himself offers to us the fullest and the longest pleasure. I already said it, so I'll just repeat it. Psalm 1611. Got to be careful because when you have favorite verses, people might know your passwords. You can try that if you want, but I have other favorite verses too. I got to be careful. I only have a few. No, that's not true. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Why would God ever say such a thing except to entice you out of the slums of sin into the holiday at the sea, in his presence. So argument number eight is simply restating 
God himself offers himself as the source of full and lasting pleasure. Number nine. The call to love people teaches us to pursue joy. Now, this is perhaps the most counterintuitive of all. The call to love other people, to live for others, to, to, to live for the joy of others, to live for the good of others, to, to live to relieve the suffering of others all over the world. That call, I'm arguing, is a call for you to pursue maximum joy in God. Now, I'm debating here. I think I'm going to skip the argument because the entire message tomorrow is that. Don't waste your one life. Your one life, don't waste it. Basically, I'm going to argue the way not to waste your life is love. And I'm going to argue that love is the capstone of the experience of joy in God that spills over onto others and meets their needs. So hold that one. Hold that argument. And we'll just take 45 minutes on it tomorrow. Let me close with, with this one. I said I would begin and end with the argument that if you pursue your fullest pleasure in God, you glorify God. You magnify Christ. And hundreds of you perhaps have heard my favorite story on this. I'm going to tell it again for the hundreds who haven't. Because the, the testimony I get everywhere I talk about this is that this little, this little story uh, makes lights go on. So I married 43 years now as of what, 10 days ago. And I can't hold 43 roses in my hand anymore. The story used to be, you know, the many roses. So we'll just make up a number. So here I am, and I'm going to come home to my wife on the evening of the 21st. And I have it all, I have this evening all set up. All right. Let's pretend I have little children. They need a babysitter and I've taken care of that. And uh, I don't ever ring the doorbell at my own house, but I'm going to ring the doorbell and surprise her with the roses I have behind my, my back. And so I ring the doorbell, and uh, she opens the door, puzzled look on her face, and she says, Johnny, what? why do you ring the doorbell? I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. Now, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> and you know, you know why it's the wrong answer? She's not honored by that answer. Duty is a beautiful thing. really is. really is. Doing your duty is a beautiful thing. But at this moment, that's the wrong answer. Because it does not honor her as much as she should be honored at a moment when I'm trying to make much of her. So let's rewind the tape and ring the doorbell and get it right this time. So you ring a doorbell, and uh, she opens the door, and I say, Happy anniversary, Noel. She says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And, and I say, 
can't help myself. It just makes me happy to buy you roses. In fact, I've got this whole evening set up. I've got a babysitter. Why don't you go change clothes? We're going out because there's nothing I'd rather do than to spend the evening with you. Never in a million years would she say, nothing you'd ever do. All you ever think about is yourself. Nothing you'd ever do. You just want to be happy all the time. Why wouldn't she say that? Nothing I'd rather do than to spend the night with you. Me, 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 me. <laughs> Nothing I'd rather do. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't she call me selfish? And you know why. Because when I'm satisfied in her, I make much of her. God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. A wife is made much of when a husband doesn't say, it's my duty to take you out on your anniversary, so we're going out tonight. I read the book. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> what, what, what would she feel? How does God feel when you do that? Supposed to go to church on Sunday morning. That's what you do. Supposed to witness. That's what you do. I read it in the book. Go witness. They say that at campus outreach. Life on life. Get it done. God. Put it in. Put in the time today. Got some life on life. That's 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 not going to honor this unbeliever as a creature that God is after with His blood. God is after you, and nothing. Need stand in your way because he sent his son into the world to shed his blood so that your guilt could be removed, your righteousness could be provided, your condemnation could be born and taken away. And you hear him saying, Christ suffered once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. God sent Jesus into the world to get you to the holiday at the sea at the cost of his son's life. So, Father, I ask you now that these ten biblical observations undergirding the truth that our problem is not that we want to be happy. Our problem is that we are far too easily pleased and that our capacity for joy has shrunk down to where we are satisfied with mud pies in the slum when we're being offered an everlasting and ever-increasingly joyful holiday at sea. I'm asking for new birth for some, and I'm asking for reawakening for others. Lord, this is the end of a year. So as we look back and regret our failures to delight in you, let us right now simply honestly and openly before the Lord say, I'm sorry. I've dishonored you. I've committed idolatry. I haven't put you first. You haven't been the treasure of my life. And I'm sorry. And now I'm pleading with you as the year turns that you would become for me everything, that you would become the supreme treasure of my life because Christ died for me.
and rose for me and reigns for me. So, Father, remove every obstacle, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.